Hello, America. I'm Dr. Jake Jacobs, and welcome to our final installment of our series, A Brief History of American Political Parties. Today, we're wrapping up things, discussing the Republican fight for civil rights and American prosperity. You know, we, we, we know the Republican Party was founded primarily to end the Democratic Party's desire to advance and preserve slavery. In previous shows, we've discussed the Democratic War uh, th that led to the Civil War to keep slavery and their hatred of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. We know about the, uh, you know, the, their extension of Jim Crow, black codes, and things related. After Abraham Lincoln, Republicans had various presidents. One of their interesting presidents that they had was a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Harrison. He beat Grover Cleveland in 1888. Now, he has an incredible uh, background. He was the grandson of the ninth president of the United States, William Henry Harrison, and the great-grandson of Benjamin Harrison V, an actual founding father. Now, Harrison was known for building up the Navy and creating a national forest service. He was a, a proud conservationist, and he be, even before Teddy Roosevelt, many people know Teddy Roosevelt about this, but he protected land out west, even species like the fur seal. He fought unsuccessfully to secure black Americans' voting rights. He was trying to get, because what was happening is Democrats were fighting against the 15th Amendment, which was the amendment for black men to vote, and Harrison Republicans were trying to change that, and it wasn't working very effectively in the democratically controlled South. Now, some of the things that Benjamin Harris did that really hurt him badly was that he had way too high of tariffs, causing a lot of business problems, and he uncharacteristically was a huge spender of federal money. In fact, it's the first time $1 billion was spent by the central government, and it caused him to be defeated by the guy he beat previously, Grover Cleveland. That's never happened before, by the way. You're president, you lose, and then you're president again. And as you know, Cleveland, Ohio is named after Grover Cleveland. Now, Teddy Roosevelt actually campaigned for Benjamin Harris, and he became known across the country, and eventually he became the vice president under the Republican William McKinley. And then, sadly, McKinley was assassinated, and Teddy Roosevelt became president of the United States. One of the great lines from uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, was, Speak softly and carry a big stick you will go far. Well, many historians believe that Teddy Roosevelt actually went far and accomplished a lot. Now, this is a time period of the explosion of the progressive political philosophy in American history. Progressivism actually took over a chunk of the Republican Party, a significant part of the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and so, therefore, he was willing through a progressive approach take on big businesses with unfair uh, pricing and unfair uh, trade acting. Now, like Harrison, Teddy Roosevelt was a huge, even bigger conservationist. He loved being outside, loved hunting and fishing, and he actually created the U.S. Forest Service, and he saved literally hundreds of millions of acres of forest and wildlife all throughout the country. 
Now, many limited government people, libertarians, uh, conservative Democrats, uh, conservative Republicans, believe that Teddy Roosevelt exercised way too much executive power. But he was a progressive. Remember, the progressives, starting with Woodrow Wilson, well, actually with him, and then Woodrow Wilson, they believed that the, the central government and that the executive must wield much power and get things done uh, hugely in many, many different ways. Remember, this is the time period that back in the state of Wisconsin, the great state of Wisconsin, where uh, I'm from and where, we, where this uh, show is being recorded from, there was the former governor of Wisconsin and senator by the name of Robert La Follette. And if you look in American history, this Republican La Follette, Robert La Follette, was a famous progressive who believed in much bigger government. Now, in, you know, when you look at American history, prior to Teddy Roosevelt, only one president had issued over 200 executive orders. Grover Cleveland had 253. The first 25 presidents issued a total of 1,682 executive orders. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, he actually issued 1,081 executive orders. And therefore, he's known for you know, expanding the power of not only the central government, but the executive branch. And some people called him King Teddy. Now, the Republican president, as far as I'm concerned, that sets an example of wisdom and economic prudence was Calvin Coolidge. Now, in 1920, Warren G. Hardy was elected president of the United States, and Calvin Coolidge was his vice president. Hardy dies, and Calvin Coolidge comes into power. And Calvin Coolidge actually was given the nickname Silent Cal. He was a man of few words. But he was incredibly bright, incredibly articulate, incredibly sharp when it came to economics. Now, what he did is Warren G. Hardy had a secretary of treasury by the name of Andrew Mellon, a brilliant economist, a brilliant businessman. And in 1924, Andrew Mellon wrote a book called Taxation, The People's Business. Now, I think this is very interesting. He calls it the people's business because, as you know, uh, the, the progressive president, Woodrow Wilson, gave us the progressive income tax. The more you make, the more the government takes. And in many cases, that marginal tax rate was so high, it had the opposite effect of what it wanted to accomplish. It wasn't accomplishing prosperity. It wasn't bringing in federal revenue enough. And along came Andrew Mellon, and Mellon said, wait a minute here. We've got the tax rate too high. In fact, the tax rate under Woodrow Wilson went from 7% up to 77%. That's how they financed World War I. And Warren G. Hardy inherited that war debt. And Calvin Coolidge said, just like a family's budget, you don't want to be in too much debt. So between Calvin Coolidge and Warren, excuse me, and Andrew Mellon, they decided the wise, prudent, smart thing to do would be to lower that marginal tax rate, which at that time was at 73%, and they dropped it down to 25%. And the naysayers and the big government progressive says, oh, my God, tax breaks for the rich. It's the end of prosperity. It's the end of bringing in money into the federal government. They don't call it the roaring 20s for nothing. Because now, all of a sudden, more corporations, more businesses, big, 
medium and small businesses had more money, more entrepreneurial capital, and they hired more people, and they had more venture capital and more uh, and more creativity, more capital creativity, more products being created than ever before, from zippers to the radio to icebox refrigerators and things related. And the economy exploded. And in fact, so much revenue came in because of the cutting of the marginal tax rate, they paid off half of the Democratic Woodrow Wilson Democratic war debt. That's a great accomplishment. By the way, remember, keep this in mind. President Ronald Reagan was in high school and in college during this time period, and Reagan majored in economics, and Calvin Coolidge was one of his favorite presidents. Keep that in mind in a little bit. Now, 1928, Herbert Hoover, not the vacuum cleaner. Herbert Hoover comes into power. He becomes president of the United States. And there's a myth out there. The myth in many of our textbooks taught in many of our universities is that he was a hands-off, laissez-faire, small government kind of guy. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's interesting. They don't call that dam out west Hoover Dam for nothing, right? Now, it's interesting. Even that, that the name of the Hoover Dam, which is officially called the Hoover Dam, they played politics with the name of the Hoover Dam because it was the Hoover Dam. It was initiated by Herbert Hoover during his administration because he used the power of the central government. He used the power of federal money to build this dam for energy. Well, the Democrats didn't like the fact that Hoover actually got a credit for it, so they renamed it the Boulder Dam. But a lot of people said, wait a minute here. It was actually Herbert Hoover who was the man behind the dam, the key man behind the dam. So to Terry S. Truman's credit, the Democrat, he knew the Democrats were playing a game. He officially renamed it the Hoover Dam. Now, some of the dumb stuff that the Republicans did in this time period in history was in 1930 when Republicans in the House and the Senate passed something called the Smoot-Hawley Tariffs Act. They put a tax on imported goods on 20,000 imported goods. It caused a goods, an export-import war that hurt American workers, American businesses profoundly during the Great Depression. And then Herbert Hoover, not taking the advice of Andrew Mellon, in essence, he said, look, what we need to do is we need to raise the marginal tax rate. And he raised the rate from 63%, took it from 25%, raised it all the way up from 63%. It had a profound deleterious effect upon, the, uh, upon businesses, upon the American workers. It exasperated and made worse the Great Depression. And they, they put taxes on corporations and on estates. And it made things worse and worse and worse as corporations and, and rich entrepreneurs were finding ways of hiding their money and pulling their money out of circulation. And by the way, remember, when Herbert Hoover ran against Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Roosevelt said that he was a big government spender and taxer and that he was responsible for huge deficits and huge debts. In fact, when he gave that speech, when when FDR gave that speech in Pittsburgh in October of 1932, he more or less said, look, it's, it's horrible what this guy's all about. He's a big government guy, and if you elect me, I'll bring back small government. And as you know, just the opposite happened. 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt exploded the central government through the New Deal. And spending upon spending and deficit and debt upon deficit, and even his Secretary of Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, said it didn't work. Now, 1952, Dwight Eisenhower, the man who beat Adolf Hitler, Dwight Eisenhower, comes into power. Remember, he was the commander, he was the head of the Allied forces that invaded France on June 6, 1944. He was an amazing general. He was a brilliant general, brilliant strategist, who worked with the British and worked with our allies to destroy National Socialism. And then he ends up running for president and winning. And he was, in pres he was, in, he was president when I was brought into this world in 1956. He was president from 1953 to early 1961. You know, Harry uh, S. Truman used to have on his desk, uh, the buck stops here. Well, Dwight Eisenhower had uh, on his desk, it said, gently in manner, strong indeed. He ended, Dwight Eisenhower, Ike, I like Ike, right, ended the Korean War in 1953. American prosperity was growing, innovativeness was growing in the United States of America. He put in the pledge uh, under God into the Pledge of Allegiance, 1954. When he was over in Germany and he saw the Autobahn and saw the transportation abilities of the Germans, he got an idea and came back to the United States and said, we need to have an interstate system from Maine all the way to Washington, from Florida all the way to California. And so he's known for the 1956 Interstate Highway Act. And I know what you're thinking, Jake, 1956 is the great year you were born. That's right, the year that Elvis Presley was singing You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, and Chuck Berry was singing rock and roll music. It's also 1959, the day the music died, when uh, it was a big bopper, Richie Valens and Buddy Holly. They came all the way, right by this studio, in fact. They were in Green Bay. They were on their way to Appleton, right here in Appleton, Wisconsin. But their bus froze. It was, it was February made me shiver, right, from the song American Pie. And the music died when Eisenhower was president. Some of the great accomplishments during the Eisenhower administration was the 1957 Civil Rights Act. And it was the Democrat. The longest filibuster in American history, 24 hours and I think 18 minutes by the Southern Democrat, Strong Thurmond, who did not want to see it passed, but eventually it got passed. Much of the civil rights legislation that was passed by the Republicans and Eisenhower was watered down by the Democrats, the Dixiecrats in this time period in history. Dwight Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne down to Little Rock, Arkansas to stop the segregation Jim Crow Horrible stuff that was happening in Little Rock, Arkansas in this time period. And by the way, Dwight Eisenhower, I, I shouldn't be smiling when I say this, but he had a heart attack uh, in September of 1955. And this in itself is a fascinating topic, but it's because of his heart attack that made the news that caused a lot of doctors and a lot of government officials to start their war on meat, eggs, and fat. That is, a, maybe someday we'll do a topic, a show on that. It's absolutely fascinating stuff with Dr. Ansel Keys, the guy who put cigarettes into the ration boxes that got my dad hooked on camel cigarettes during World War II. Now, Dwight Eisenhower was known for so many things. He actually died on my birthday, March 28, 1969. I still have the newspapers. But 
in his last few days in office, he actually was concerned about something he saw growing in the United States of America. In his last three days in office is an excellent book that relates to this by Brett Baer. Three Days in January, Dwight Eisenhower's Final Mission. And one of the things that he was concerned about is something that he called the military-industrial complex. Now, you may be a little confused here because, wait, Jake, he was the, the, he was the Allied commander who beat Adolf Hitler. He was the head of the military in Europe. He, he understood that the America needed to be strong to defeat national socialism, needed to be strong to make sure that Soviet socialism, scientific socialism in Europe didn't take over Europe and didn't come and take over the United States. Yep, you're right. Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, believed in a strong military. Don't get me wrong. But what he saw going on in this time period was actually where you saw the military-industrial complex of these businesses that were lobbying in the Pentagon, and actually Pentagon officials, people in the military, were retiring in their 40s and 50s, and then they were taking jobs in the industrial complex— aeroscience, you know, and things related, where they were making big money, and of course, they were looking to expand to sell more planes and tanks and things related. So I want you to hear his warning from 1961 about the military-industrial complex. Here goes. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could with time, and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. By the military-industrial complex. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I, like President Eisenhower, like General Eisenhower, believe in a strong, efficient military, second to none. 
But what he was saying is there's a propensity and a tendency within the bureaucracy to waste and to have it a game of profiteering at the expense of the flourishing of the American people of the United States. Now, I know pacifists and leftists have used, have taken Eisenhower out of context to say, in essence, that he didn't believe strongly in the military, etc. No, he was warning of potential harm and danger. And we saw that happen during the Vietnam War under LBJ with the explosion of military expenditures. We, we saw that in a significant number of wars in American history recently, and we're concerned about it right now as we're spending billions of dollars in Ukraine and, and military armaments upon armaments being sent around the world. So let us listen to the words of President Dwight Eisenhower and be concerned about that. Remember, he believed that the government's central, the primary purpose of the central government was to be strong enough to protect but not too large to hurt us. The next president came into office in 1968. He was the vice president under uh, Eisenhower, under Ike. He was Richard Nixon. I am not a crook, Richard Nixon. There's so much to talk about Nixon. One of the things that he did was take us off the gold standard. I think that was a major mistake. He tried to have price controls upon price controls, which exasperated the economy in this time period. He did end the war in Vietnam in January of 1973 at the Paris Accords. I have to admit, I was in high school at the time, heading towards the age of 18 and being concerned about being uh, sent off to that war as my brother was drafted in 69. So we partied. We partied when that happened. The war actually officially came to an end in April of 1975. So there was a lot of things that Nixon did, and we all know the infamous case where the Washington Post went after him and Hillary Clinton, and actually people don't recognize that Hillary Clinton was one of the lawyers that was going after Richard Nixon in this time period. But they ended up destroying his career for some of the stupid things that were going on within Watergate. He resigned in August of 1974, and then came Gerald Ford. And Ford had something called win whip inflation now. It didn't work. And then Jimmy Carter made it worse, but I am digressing. I want to talk about uh, uh, the Reagan revolution. This is so important for us to understand the Reagan revolution. There was a gentleman who was a Hollywood movie star by the name of Ronald Reagan, and he ran for governor of California in 1966, and his opponent, the Democrat Pat Brown, ridiculed him and said, you know, he's just a dumb Hollywood actor. He, you know, he's, he's just some bonzo dude who played in some movie called Bedtime for Bonzo. He's like a monkey guy, and he's not, he's not a very accomplished individual. <laughs> Uh, well, Reagan won by a landslide. By the way, that Pat Brown was the father of Jerry Brown, right? The governor of uh, San Francisco, excuse me, the mayor of San Francisco. Well, eventually the governor of California and his girlfriend was Linda Ronstadt. Remember the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt from back in the 60s? My music, great time period in American history. So Ronald Reagan becomes the governor of California, the seventh largest economy in the world, the biggest state in the United States. And he took on militant leftists, radicals at Berkeley, radicals all throughout the state, took on the Marxist Black Panthers, and he won a second election, resoundingly. 
He was hated by the left. He was called the, the fascist gun in, in, the, in the West. Or the, yeah, the fascist gun in the West. Remember, they were calling conservatives or Republicans fascists back in the 60s, in fact, way back to the 1930s. Well, he ends up becoming president of the United States, but there's so much I could pick from Ronald Reagan. But in 1964, when he was starting to get known around the country, there was a gentleman from Arizona. I used to live in Arizona. I used to run by this gentleman's home. His name was Barry Goldwater. There was the Goldwater uh, department stores in Arizona. Um, he, Barry Goldwater was a senator who ran for president, and he got himself whooped by LBJ in the 1964 pre presidential election. But right before that election, he asked Ronald Reagan to give a speech, and it was called The Time for Choosing. Now remember something, Ronald Reagan was a serious student of economics, a serious student of history. He was the president of the Screen Actor Guild seven different times. He negotiated with these Hollywood moguls. He knew when to hold them and he knew when to fold them. He was a brilliant strategist. He was soon to become governor of California and eventually president. But listen to what he had to say in this film, A Time for Choosing. You get a sense of the brilliance, of the conviction, of the principles of Ronald Reagan. Here goes. Not too long ago, two friends of mine were talking to a Cuban refugee, a businessman who had escaped from Castro. And in the midst of his story, one of my friends turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. For three decades, and we sought to solve the problems of unemployment through government planning. And the more the plans fail, the more the planners plan. The latest is the Area Redevelopment Agency. They've just declared Rice County, Kansas, a depressed area. Rice County, Kansas has 200 oil wells, and the 14,000 people there have over $30 million on deposit in personal savings in their banks. <laughs> when the government tells you you're depressed, lie down and be depressed. We have so many people who can't see a fat man standing beside a thin one without coming to the conclusion the fat man got that way by taking advantage of the thin one. Yet any time you and I question the schemes of the do-gooders, we're denounced as being against their humanitarian goals. They say we're always against things, we're never for anything. Well, the trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant, it's just that they know so much that isn't so. They say we offer simple answers to complex problems. Well, perhaps there is a simple answer, not an easy answer but simple. If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally you right, and, I know we and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the you world? You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Oh, 
I, I still I still get goosebumps when I listen. That's one of the great speeches in American history. You can hear FDR in that. People forget that Ronald Reagan loved FDR. He didn't become a Republican till the early 1960s. I mean, literally. And, you know, I, I teach on the life of Ronald Reagan at, the, uh, uh, at his ranch in Santa Barbara for Young Americans for Freedom. I've even had the honor when they bought the Ronald Reagan's home in Dixon, Illinois, to be in one of the actually the very first event I was able to speak at at that event. And uh, I'm just I thank God that I'm able to to speak on his life and to speak on, on conservative principles, Reagan con- principles. The Reagan revolution made a big difference in American history. I had the honor of being with him in his office in, in Hollywood, California. Actually, his office in Hollywood, California is the Die Hard office. You know the movie Die Hard? Yeah. His office was towards the top of the building. I kid you not. I love saying that. I can remember going to the building and saying, oh, my God, this is where they filmed the film Die Hard. Seriously. Can't wait for Christmas to watch Die Hard. But really, it was like it's like a Christmas gift every time when I get a chance to speak on his life. I miss the Gipper. So they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him when he ran for governor of California. They called him a fascist, a Nazi, etc., etc. He saved California. He helped California. Then he ran for president in 1976 and almost beat Gerald Ford. In fact, many people at the convention recognized they made a major mistake by picking Gerald Ford, but it wasn't God's time yet. Then came Jimmy Carter and the melees of the Carter administration, double digits, everything. And along came Ronald Reagan, who majored in economics in college at Eureka College during the Great Depression who studied the great economic thinkers like Milton Friedman and uh, F. Hay Hayek and, and Ludwig von Mises. They, the intellectual pinheads used to say Reagan is an idiot, he's a dunce, he's a bonzo, bedtime for bonzo guy. Not true at all. He was actually brilliant, well-versed and well-read in American history and economics. And so when he became president of the United States, he had learned from Calvin Coolidge's Andrew Mellon lowering the marginal tax rate. He had learned from JFK lowering the marginal tax rate. And he came into office and he gave the largest tax cut in American history. He lowered JFK's marginal rate from 70% down to 28%. And I got to tell you what. At first, people are like, oh, my God, what has this guy done? This is horrible. High unemployment. Businesses were suffering, and Reagan took a lot of hits from the leftists. They were calling him a fool, a dunce, and Reagan says, you wait, you wait. Eventually, we're going to start getting the American locomotion of energy prosperity flourishing and going. And sure enough, by 1983, it was kicking in. And by 1984, it was in high gear. And Ronald Reagan won in an all-time historical landslide, 49 states out of 50. 49 states out of 50, and the only state he lost was the state of his opponent, Walter Mondale, the state of Minnesota, and he almost won that one. Now, by the way, I got to show you, there's so many, so many great things that, um, that Ron, so many speeches and things. We could talk about his tear down this wall speech and, and his speeches on D-Day over in Normandy, France, but I got to show you a little bit of his humor uh, in the second, uh, in the debate against Walter Mondale in 1984, 
He was 73 years young, and I mean young, nothing like the old, old president we have presently in the White House, who if he runs again will be 82 and looks like he's more like 99, but I digress. So during the debate, the issue of his age, the, the leftists were just, he's too old, he's, he's, he's not capable of actually handling himself. He was sharp as all get out. So the, the question comes up, and listen to what he has to say. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> Oh, uh, when Mondale started to laugh, I mean, Mondale laughed. I mean, Reagan was trained. He was not, he was trained in Hollywood. He was trained to negotiate with Hollywood moguls. He was, tra he, he, was tra he was governor of California for two terms. He was brilliant thinker, and he comes off with that line, and even his opponent laughed at it. It was the beginning of the end of Mondale and the beginning of, of the second term of Ronald Reagan and a landslide in 1984. Yeah, I sure do miss the Gipper. I really do. What a great leader. We need more men like him, men or women like him back into the country. Maybe it's Ronald DeSantis, the Republican Ronald DeSantis uh, of Florida. Now, 1988, George H.W. Bush. He made a major mistake as far as many people are, are concerned because he said something to this effect, read my lips, no new taxes. And then what did he do? He raised taxes. He really was not for Reagan's viewpoint of government. He was too moderate and he felt that Reagan's economics viewpoints were off and that's a part of his legacy. He ended up allowing a lot of spending going on and he raised taxes and it slowed down the government. And he's also known for Gulf War I. And then, of course, we know his son, Baby Bush, or George W. Bush, became president in the year 2000, winning by just a mere 537 votes in the state of Florida. 537 votes. People, every single vote counts. In 2016, the media, Hollywood, all these leftists, they all laughed and said it was going to be a landslide for Hillary Clinton. Hillary went and bought the balloons, had a big party all planned, because everybody was saying from the West Coast to the East Coast, all the elites were saying Hillary Clinton was going to win. But Donald Trump, Donald Trump won the 2016 election and became President of the United States of America. And from the get-go... The leftists went epileptic nuts. There were riots in Washington, D.C. Well over 200 people were arrested. The Washington Post talked about impeaching him before he was even president, talked about impeaching him. There was a permanent coup d'etat trying to destroy President Trump. 
He brings in a tax cut that had profound effects like Ronald Reagan's tax cut. Low unemployment. He removes the embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. No president. They all promised they were going to do it, but Donald Trump delivered. Four peace treaties in, with, middle, with Muslim countries in the Middle East. Energy independent under the Trump administration. But the left was continually trying to destroy him. Well, my fellow Americans, it's important to know American political party history, our election history, the famous election of 1994 with the Republican Revolution. We're soon to approach another uh, uh, election coming up here in one in 2024. What will happen? What will occur? Only God knows, but we do know this much. The destiny of the United States of America is in the hands of its people, the great people of the United States. So that's going to put a nice little bow on our brief history of American political parties. I'm Dr. Jake Jacobs, and until we meet again, Godspeed, God bless these United States of America.